Thank you. Thank you so much. It is really good to be here with you today. I am, I'm really honored and happy to be here. And I think it's really awesome that we can all be on mission together and just gather in different spots uh, on a Sunday morning. And so that's, that's really cool. Um, I know you guys are missing Jordan. He's been gone two weeks now. It's been fun. Who's been following him on the Facebook post as his, in Israel? A couple of you. Amazing pictures. Uh, excited to have him back and to hear all the stories. Um, but here's a question for you, um, or maybe, maybe this is maybe just a statement to get us started here. Uh, in case you're wondering, there are 56 days until Christmas. Hopefully that doesn't raise your anxiety too much right out of the hole this morning. But what that means is that there are actually 62 days until New Year's Eve. Now, some of you make a really big deal out of New Year's Eve, and some of you really, it's just another day. You probably stay home because, honestly, sometimes we spend too much money at Christmas. So by New Year's, you're like, okay, we're drained. Let's stay home. But I'm curious, and maybe we can just kind of get to know each other a little bit today. Uh, I wonder where you are on the spectrum. And so I would love for you to just raise your hand if your eyes do not see midnight on New Year's Eve. Any of us in here? Okay, so there's a few of you. Don't worry, you're not lame. You might have dinner. You're not, you might be at home having a nice dinner. You might play a game or something, but uh, that's okay. Here's the thing. With people on this end of the spectrum, we kind of think like, our eyes don't see midnight any other day of the week, so why would they on New Year's Eve, right? All right, so who's on the other end of the spectrum? Who would not miss the clock striking midnight on New Year's Eve? Yeah, so some of you too. Okay, that's awesome. You know, some of us make uh, New Year's resolutions that we keep for like a week. Um, one of the things that I really love about uh, my friend and your friend and Pastor Jordan is that, I don't know if he does this anymore, but we used to work together. I'm from Fairhaven and we were on the family ministry team together. And one of the things that he used to do is he used to choose a word at the end of the year. Um, he would kind of spend some time with the Lord and reflect and then go, all right, what's a word that I'm going to hold on to? for the rest of the year. He used to do that and inspired me to actually do that one year as well. Um, and I think I might do that again this year. It's kind of cool to see how that all plays out and how God brings that back to mind at different times and different seasons. Um, one of the things that I love to do at the end of the year, I fall on both ends of the spectrum actually too, by the way. I have gone to bed at nine and I have stayed up till one thirty-two o'clock. So that's where I fall in that. Um, but one of the things that I love to do at the end of the year is I love to make um, a family album. And so I've done this, I think this will be year 14, where I have kind of gathered pictures over the last 12 months. And it always amazes me when I look back and be like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot about that trip or that experience that I had. And there's always, my family's a little accident prone. Anybody else accident prone family? So there's always at least one picture of someone in the ER or someone in the hospital. And the point is, life is just full of uncertainties, isn't it? And so it's fun for me to look back on the last 12 months and just see Jesus uh, in the center of it all. And so what I want to do today is just kind of set us up here. If you're new to, the, to Wyoming Harbor, uh, we're a multi-site church, and we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And so today we actually launch a new kind of mini-series. We're getting towards the end of the book, aren't we? And so we're launching a new mini-series called Light at the End of the Tunnel. And so this section of the Bible can actually be quite controversial, 
and misunderstood because Jesus is talking um, about, well, that's part of what makes it controversial. People are trying to figure out, is he talking about this or is he talking about that? There are actually many theologians that are really smart, far smarter than me, that disagree on this topic. They have different perspectives. And so I just want to say from the beginning that while I have a view and a conviction about what this text is saying, I am not insistent. This is the only way. And anyone else who differs is wrong. That's not where I'm coming from here. And it's actually pretty arrogant to do that. We want to come to the Bible, come to the scriptures with a posture of humility and curiosity and uh, an eagerness to and a willingness to learn from each other and to glean from other believers. And even at the end of the day, if we disagree, we can agree on one thing. And that's what's in the center, what's most important, uh, which is Jesus. Amen? So we are going to be kicking off this new series, and it's, it's Matthew 24 and 25. And in some Bibles, it's titled, The Destruction of the Temple and the Signs of the End Times. And you might be thinking, oh, great, I brought a friend with me for the first day, and we're talking about the end? Come on. Uh, but it's going to be fun. Don't worry. Um, I'm curious, though, where you fall on this spectrum of end times. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm just wondering, like, think about this with me for a minute. Would you put yourself on this end of the spectrum where uh, maybe the apathetic camp, you maybe don't really necessarily care about the end times, don't spend much time thinking about it, kind of, I have a friend that once in a while will say, Lori, ignorance is bliss. Maybe that's where you are when it comes to the end times. Or are you on this end of the spectrum? where you are obsessed with the end times. You love reading about it and your, the warnings and the different literature out there. Wherever you are on that spectrum with the end times, what I want to do is pull us together, and I have two goals for us today. And the first is just to uh, build and strengthen our confidence that what Jesus prophesies, what he predicts, has happened or will happen. He is trustworthy. All right. And then the second goal is this. I, I want us to wrestle with this text and I want to wrestle with ultimately what we put in the center and why. So with that, I want to get us into a little context. Um, where are we in today's story? Where are we in Matthew 24? Um, it's Passover week. It's a seven-day festival where Jews from all over would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And if you're not familiar with this story, it goes all the way back to the Old Testament when Moses, a God through Moses, led the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt. So cool. We just sang about that. So way to listen to the spirit, Eric and praise team. Uh, but that's what's happening here. It's the story of the last plague. You might remember the 10 plagues that happened in Egypt, right? And that last plague was where God, through Moses, told the Israelites to take the blood of an unblemished lamb and to put it over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over, hence the word Passover, right? Would pass over them and their sons would be rescued. That's what happened there. So it's Passover week where everyone's gathering to, to celebrate and remember 
how God rescued them out of Egypt. Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem, not on a a war horse as a mighty king, but on a donkey, a foal of a donkey, a baby donkey, you guys. He came as a humble servant and he went straight to the temple. He has tipped over tables in righteous anger because teachers of the law and the Pharisees were stealing and cheating, especially from the widows and the poor. They were exchanging money. If you remember this story from probably just a few weeks ago, exchanging money to buy animals, to sacrifice, to give an offering to the Lord. And so this brings us to last week. I think you guys talked about this, where Jesus, the final things he says in this crowd before he leaves the temple is, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather your children together. And he says, like a hen gathers her chicks. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of this, or maybe you have a farm or you've seen this on a farm where a hen spreads out its wings and it provides this protection, this covering, this belonging. And Jesus is like, oh, Jerusalem, if only I could gather you as a hen gathers its chicks, but you were not willing That brings us to the text today, which is Matthew 24. And I think what's really cool about Matthew 24 and 25 is actually it's Jesus's second longest recorded message. Um, If you think of it like bookends, back if you were with us at the very beginning of the year, December, January is when we started this series, we slowly made our way through Matthew and it was Matthew 5 through 7 that was Jesus's longest message. Right? The Sermon on the Mount. You guys remember this? Matthew 5 through 7. It was a public sermon and it was full of blessings. And now we're at the end and Jesus has his final message. It's full of curses, full of woes. His first message was public to everyone and saying, blessed are the meek, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are those who mourn. And now we find Jesus saying, woe to you, cursed are you, teachers and Pharisees of the law. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, excuse me. (laughs) Cursed are you, you hypocrites, you blind guides, you brood of vipers. I mean, what happened? What happened there? You see the contrast on one end of the spectrum versus the other? Jesus here towards the end of his ministry was expressing, you guys talked about this last week, right? Lament and righteous anger over what had become the center of these people's hearts and minds. And so today we we pick up the story again, and we're just going to pause throughout the text, do a little exegesis, if you will. We're going to pick apart that text and just kind of talk about what it means. So at this point, Jesus has only three days left to live. He has spent a ton of time at the temple. And now chapter 24, verse 1, read this with me. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to the buildings. So what buildings uh, were the disciples referring to? Well, they were 
just walking away from the temple, right? This massive structure. Here's a model that, of what it might have looked like. It was this majestic building. And some of the stones were larger than cars. Just imagine that. Some of the smallest stones were two to five tons. That's like an elephant, friends. And some of the largest ones, 570 tons. The point is, the temple... Uh, this, it would have been awe-inspiring even for us in our day. And the disciples were like, wow, Jesus, look how impressive this is. I'm not sure, as I read this text several times, I thought to myself, they've been to the temple a lot of times. Why is it this time they're like, they're, they're so impressed with it? Have you ever gone somewhere maybe and you're like blown away by the beauty and the next time you go, it's like, yeah, I've kind of been there, done that, seen that. The disciples have spent a lot of time at the temple and for some reason they're calling attention to the temple and it's almost like they are just struck by its beauty and its magnificence and almost as if it's invincible. And so here's what we know about what's happening in this time period is that Herod the Great has been doing a renovation project. He's been working on the temple. He's, he figured the quickest way to the hearts of the people was to work on what matters most to them. This was central to their life and their faith and their world. And that's the quickest way to their hearts. How about I make this thing so grand and, and so beautiful and so what could be happening here is the disciples are just simply blown away at this renovation project. Um, and maybe rightly so. Every stone was decorated. It was etched. It was beveled. There was gold. There was marble added to it. It was quite impressive. It also makes me wonder, maybe, just perhaps, the temple may have gained a little too much importance even in their hearts. I don't know. We don't know, right? All we know is that Jesus saw the temple for what it had become. Gorgeous and magnificent on the outside. But Jesus saw the heart. He always does. And he saw that the temple had become a place of greed. Remember, a den of robbers. And this is how Jesus responds um, after they called attention to the buildings. Verse 2, do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. This was an outrageous thing to say, treasonist, really. This was their place of worship. It was where the presence of God resided. It was central to their faith. I can't emphasize this enough. And central to their heritage. And it must be that Jesus' prediction really bothered some of the disciples. Because look what happens next in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the disciples come to him privately. Uh, this is a message that's also recorded in Mark 
one of the later Gospels, Mark 13, and also Luke 21. And so if you do a little digging, like I did this week, Mark 13 actually tells us, in case, you know, inquiring minds want to know, what disciples actually came to him privately. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. There were crowds and crowds of people at the beginning of Jesus' longest message and beginning of his public ministry. And now there are five guys. Who is suddenly hungry for a cheeseburger? (laughs) I love five guys, but I heard two guys is even better. So maybe check that out. But here's what's happening here. There's four disciples, and Jesus is asked two questions. Let's look at those two questions. The first question they ask is, when will this happen, Jesus? When will that one stone be left on another? And then the second question they ask is this, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's, it's as if they link the, the temple being destroyed with Jesus's return. Um, and I don't think that they were just asking about the temple um, and decided like, hey, let's throw in this random question and find out when Jesus is coming back to you. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that the temple was so central to their faith and their life that they were linking the two together. My goodness. Okay. If he's saying that the temple is going to be destroyed, we believe him. But that's got to mean if the temple is going to be destroyed again, this would have been the second time, right? They're like, surely if the temple is going to be destroyed, it's the end of the world and Jesus is returning. But before Jesus even answers their question, he warns them. Look at this on verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, meaning there will be war. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Oftentimes, war leads to famine, which which leads to pestilence or, or disease. All of these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Jesus repeats himself here. He has said deception, deceive twice now. It's going to be a thing. Be careful. Don't be led astray. Don't let anybody fool you. People are going to say they're me, but don't believe them. About two months ago, uh, Dennis, you might remember this. My husband Dennis is here with me today. Uh, We went to Costco, and we were in our convertible. This was like two months ago or so. We went to go get gas real quick. And so we pull up, and there's two guys. um, One's on his phone is the younger guy, and then there's an older guy that's kind of they're talking back and forth. There's a little bit of laughter and something going on. But we pull up, and being that the top was down, it was easy for them. Before we could even say hello or Dennis even get out of the car, they're like, hey, do you have TikTok? I'm like, such a random question. Um, No, I actually am not that cool. I don't have TikTok. But I know what it means. What's on TikTok today? And they're like, oh, well, there's a video that it's going to be the end of the world soon. 
I'm like, oh my goodness, if you only knew you were talking to a preacher who was going to preach on this in just a couple of weeks. Apparently you can't even get gas without people talking about the end of the world. But Jesus says, don't let anyone trick you. And he goes on to say this in verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom, which is the gospel means the good news of Jesus, it'll be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, wink, wink. We're going to time out here for just a second because I don't know about you, but I don't use those words, um, abomination of desolation. I, I don't even hear those words. Uh, so I want to make sure we know what those mean. Abomination, it means evil. It's detestable. And desolation, it means ruin, destruction. So he's saying the abomination that causes desolation, the evil that causes ruin. All right. And so really quick here, because I think what's happening is Jesus is referring to the prophet Daniel and Daniel had a same prediction. He used the same words and it's almost as if the author Matthew is kind of winking at us. Like let the reader understand. Like if you understand what happened here in Daniel's prophecy, you'll get what's happening over here. So, so really quick, what happened back in the days of Daniel is he prophesied that this would happen. And sure enough, in the days of the Maccabees, there was a king named King Antiochus. He came in and he erected uh, a statue, uh, perhaps of himself, I'm not sure, um, but he erected a temple, a, a statue to Zeus in the temple. It was ruin. It was evil that caused ruin, all right? And this is what Jesus is warning about. This is, this is something, and this whole historical event that says, when you see something like this, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, like run for the hills. You will not be safe. Let no one on the housetop go down and, and take anything out of the house. They had flat roofs back then, and often people were on them. We read about that in Acts, right, when Peter's on his roof praying. And Jesus says, don't, don't go down. Don't go down and take anything. There is no time goes on to say, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for a pregnant woman and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. This is obviously a figure to speech. Uh, we're not talking about future flight travel here. It's not a prophecy for that. Uh, but what Jesus is saying is like when stuff hits the fan in Jerusalem, and you have to take off for your journey, you better hope it's not winter and freezing out. And you sure better pray that it's not the Sabbath. Why would that matter? Well, the Sabbath had a lot of extra rules on it. And one of them was that they could only walk a certain distance, less than a mile. It was about three quarters of a mile. Boy, you better hope that this doesn't hit the fan on Sabbath. When you have to be torn between either obeying the law and, and losing your life or breaking the law of the Sabbath and fleeing for your life. That's what Jesus is saying here, okay? 
And so verse 21 says this, for then there will be great diseases unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. A third time here, Jesus is saying, watch out. Don't be tricked. Don't believe it. And he goes on, see, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Someone tells you on TikTok, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. If someone has to tell you, there's Jesus, it ain't Jesus. There will be no doubt about it. Jesus makes this really clear here. You're going to know when he comes again. It will be unmistakable. But when? When will he come back? Uh, My husband and I have two uh, grandchildren. They're four and seven. And um, Maddie, the four-year-old, and Anna, the seven-year-old, had recently invited us to Grand Friends Day. Do you guys have that in your schools, like Grand Friends Day or VIP Day? And so we were honored to go and spend Grand Friends Day there for like an hour and a half at the school. And I came into her classroom, and she came running up to me, and she's like, Mimi, I have something for you. And she gave me this sealed envelope. And I opened it up, and it says, this, this whole page of like fill in the blank. Somebody had sat down with her and just asked her questions. And it said all about my grandma. So it said like, my grandma's name is Mimi. I call her Mimi. <laughs> my grandma and I like to pray. Oh, isn't that sweet? And she's like, my grandma is 24 years old. I love that girl. (laughs) And she's like, my grandma's job is being Mimi. And then she said this, my grandma always says, I don't know. And I thought, she knows me well. I said to Denny, like, I feel so seen and heard. Like, she knows we love to pray together. And she knows I say, I don't know. You guys, she's four. You know how three and four-year-olds ask so many questions? She's in Spanish immersion, so she's constantly saying, like, Mimi, how do you say this in Spanish or this in Spanish? And every once in a while, she'll be like, how do you say this in English? And I'll be like, you just said it in English. <laughs> right? And so all of a sudden, though, I'm going, okay, when I say I don't know, oftentimes I'm like, I don't know, but let's, let's figure it out together. Thank goodness for Google, right? So there's a lot of questions and uncertainties about the timing of the end of the world and Jesus' return. And, and even Jesus, when asked by his own disciples when he was going to return, he responded this way in Mark 13, 32. He said, but the day and the hour No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. 
It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I don't know. I don't know. Which could lead to a whole lot of other questions when it comes to the Trinity that I would love to talk to you about after the service if you want to dive deeper into that. But what we do know is that Jesus' return will not be hidden. It'll be like lightning, we just read, right? That's, that is from the east, but it's seen from the west. Every human on the planet will see Jesus. He will come back personally and literally. Revelation 1.7 says this, Behold, he is coming on the clouds, and every eye will see him. There will not be a person on earth unaware of Jesus' return. Uh, about two years ago, we sold our house. Um, raise your hand if you've ever sold a house. There's some young families, maybe you're just buying a house. You guys have sold some. So you kind of know what it's like, right? You kind of go into mad panic mode of cleaning everything and weeding the landscape and doing a few repairs that you have put off. I literally can like just grab a tote, take my arm, wipe off everything that's on the counter because the realtor wants everything clean and looking bigger. Uh, We run around, we turn lights on, I bake brownies to make the house smell good. All those things in anticipation to just prepare for when the realtor calls me up and says, Hey, are you ready? Like, can can I show your house? Friends, Jesus is not going to call us first and say, Hey, are you ready? And that's not to threaten us or, or to scare us at all. It's just, it's just the facts. It's black and white and some red, right? We have to be ready for Jesus' second coming. And whether it's his second coming or our final breath, right? Whichever comes first. Three days after this teaching, Jesus was on a cross. And he had every person who ever lived and had lived and will live, he had me on his mind. He had you on his mind. And he went to the cross to take the punishment for the wrong things that we do. It's called sin. And just as the unblemished lamb and that blood was put over the doorpost to rescue those firstborn sons of Israel, so Jesus, you may have heard him called the Lamb of God, right? The Lamb of God, his blood covers us and rescues us. And the Bible tells us that the only thing that we need to do to be saved is to confess with our mouth that we believe in him and believe that God raised him from the dead and we will be saved. And friends, if that's one of you today, Um, where you haven't made that decision yet, I just want to invite you. This is an invitation. I want to invite you to consider what that would look like. And I would love to talk with you afterwards. I know Eric or anyone, any of your church family would love to process that with you and, and to pray with you. And that's the invitation. The challenge, friends, is, is this. For those of us who have confessed our faith in Jesus and have chosen to live for him and to follow him. I would love for us, this is goal two, I would love for us to wrestle today with this question and be honest with ourselves. Who might we or what might we be putting in the center of our life? Is it work? 
Is it money? Is it a person? Is it an object of some sort? Because what we put in the center shapes us. It forms us and and it affects those around us. Let me tell you why this is, is so important to me. I believe with my whole heart that following Jesus and having life with Jesus is the best way to live. Life is better with Jesus. And it is not just about a decision that affects us later. We've talked about the kingdom of heaven in this series, right? And how it's now and it's later. It's later in heaven one day. And it's right now. It's bringing God's will, his presence, his love to earth. And that is ushered in through us. Jesus at the center makes me a center for hope and healing. Jesus at the center makes you a center for hope and for healing. God's plan A for the world to know him is not any longer this one single temple where his presence resided. It is all of us as believers, many temples, if you will, all over the place. Jesus at the center makes you a center for hope and for healing. You're a high school student, and you might see a, a, another friend or a student on the, the fringes, and you invite him or her to have lunch with you, and you provide a place of, of belonging and a place to be known. Jesus at the center makes you a center for hope and healing. You might have a coworker who you learned recently, their spouse just lost their job and you know things are tight, so you bring them a bunch of groceries. Jesus at the center makes you a center for hope and for healing. It's fall, if you haven't noticed. Color's been beautiful, right? And we can't just say, Alexa, rake the leaves. I've tried. Uh, So your neighbor has a ton of leaves all over the place. And they also have signs in their yard that you absolutely do not agree with. But you raking their leaves, Jesus at the center, makes you a center for hope and for healing. Friends, Jesus came not only to reconcile or get right our relationship with him, but to get right our relationship with each other. Uh, You know the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, Jesus boiled them down to two, love God and love neighbor. And man, is that hard, isn't it? Uh, It's not easy. We are human and much grace and forgiveness is needed. Uh, for ourselves and for others. But with God's help, we can build a life and build Jesus at the center to be a center for, for hope and for healing. And, and listen, this is, this is really important. When we do that, when we're intentional to put Jesus in the center, to be a center for hope and healing, you might not notice this, but we are being formed too and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It's so important. You know, they say that you're either, you've either been in the fire 
you're in the fire now, or sorry, bad news, it's coming. Fire meaning hard times. We're all in them in different seasons. Eric mentioned that earlier. No matter what season you're in, right? I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're in a season of being in the fire right now. And if that's you, um, I just want to say me too. We are too. Uh, Just in a tough season with a family member. And it's one of those things that I have to just continually remind myself to get centered on Jesus. Keep him at the center so that I can be a center for hope and for healing. And you know what's happening? I'm being formed too. I'm noticing like an increase in the fruits of the spirit in me, which is a really beautiful thing. It's not just for others. It's what God is doing in us too. We live in a crazy world that's really messy. We talk about that here a lot, right? Life is messy. Church is messy. Neighborhoods and families are messy. But if we keep Jesus in the center, here is the truth that I can stand firm on all day long. We can be calm and we can be confident and we can be kind and we can be steadfast and we can be faithful and we can be hopeful because the end and the best is yet to come. He is trustworthy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your promises, the hope that we have in you because you are trustworthy. It's our desire to keep you or get you in the center of our hearts and our minds to stand firm and confident in your love and be an instrument of peace and reconciliation in this world. It's an honor to partner with you to help people find their way back to God. And Lord, we just ask for your blessing now that as we work to intentionally keep you in the center, that we too will be formed and transformed more and more into the image of you, Jesus Christ. And may all of this be for your glory. Amen.